And if you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, a little bit to the right of the middle of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, you could find one under the chair in front of you, and you could turn to page 618, and you would be at Ezekiel 38. The year was 1970, and a handsome young college student in the summer between his freshman and sophomore year of school, took a group of friends and went around the United States traveling to the Christian Meccas. They traveled to Glenary, Colorado, which is the headquarters of the Navigators, and he traveled to Arrowhead Springs, California, which at the time was the headquarters of Campus Crusade for Christ. And he also ended up on the campus of UCLA at the Light and Power House, which featured a young Bible teacher um, by the name of Hal Lindsey, who had just released his first book called The Late Great Planet Earth. Really is a handsome guy, isn't he? Incredibly good-looking. And when I was at the Light and Power House, <laughs> listening to Hal Lindsey teach, I literally, we, we had a room, and being college students, there was a carpeted floor, and literally I sat at Hal Lindsey's feet. I mean, I was sitting right there as he was teaching on the whole issue of truth and future prophetic events. And I can remember as a young man in college um, trying to decide whether I should go to seminary or not. And I can remember thinking, is it really strategically wise for me to spend four more years of school, 120 more hours of training to go to seminary when the prophetic events were coming together so quickly at a breakneck pace? I wondered if the end might come and Christ might return before I could even finish seminary. Well, that was 38 years ago, and uh, that raises a certain question, and that question would be, were those signs that the end of the age and that the coming of Christ was near, were they wrong? And you know, I do believe, as much as I respected Hal, that there were a few interpretations that he made that he was mistaken in. But does that make the, the study of prophecy irrelevant? Does that make the study of prophecy a waste? And my answer to that would be not in the least, not in the least, because the stage has continued to be set. And the signs that the time of Christ's return and the end of the age are even greater and more clearer than they were 38 years ago. In fact, I'm amazed at the progress that has happened. And I believe we are nearer than we have ever been. We are closer than we have ever been to the final stage of the final events being set and ready to go. Now we saw last time that the Bible counsels, counsels us when it comes to future events to avoid setting dates. And that's part of the problem that people get into. I think it could happen in three years, or it's going to happen next year, or it's going to happen in such and such a year, and we're going to look in the weeks ahead at some of the problems of setting dates that have happened in the evangelical community. 
But the Bible also teaches us, we saw last time, that we are to be aware and alert to the setting of the stage, the pieces that come together that show us that the return of Christ is near. And we look, we've looked at four signs. Remember those four signs? We, just four among a number that we could look at. We've looked at the return of Israel. We've looked at the revived Roman Empire, that the Roman Empire would reform and and coagulate again. We looked at the rise of globalism. And then last time we looked at a northern coalition of nations against Israel from Ezekiel 38 and 39. And this northern coalition is clearly identified, making up the nations of Russia and Iran and the Sudan and Libya and Algeria and Turkey and the Central Asian republics, all of the, the stands the Kazakhstan and the Turkmenistan and this stand and that stand and that stand. And we saw from Ezekiel 38, look at verse 15. This is what's going to happen. God says, you will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, you and many peoples with you. And verse 16, you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land. Now, for many years, prophecy students have looked at Ezekiel 38 and 39, and they have seen these nations designated. And the question that has arisen is, what would ever align these nations? Why would these nations come together as allies? And the best answer for a number of decades that people could come up with was the answer of oil. There seems to be some sense that oil would bring these nations together. But now, as things have unpacked over a little more time, we really can, I think, see the true core thread that brings these nations together, and that is that they are Islamic nations. The exception of Russia, these are Islamic nations identified in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and Russia is the primary ally, both politically and militarily, to these Islamic nations. What we want to do today is really continue and build a little bit more and answer a few questions that came out of our study last time of Ezekiel 38 and 39. So here's today's plan of attack. We're going to look at three things. The first thing we want to look at is the clear and present danger of radical Islam. The second thing we want to look at is to ask and answer the question, where is the USA in all of this? We have a coalition attacking Israel. We're the primary protector. Where are we? And then the third question is, what happens to the United States of America? So we want to look at those three things, more or less building on what we studied last time. The clear and present danger of radical Islam. Where is the USA in all of this? And what happens to the USA? So let's begin by looking at the clear and present danger of radical Islam. Now, prior to 9-11, seven years ago, very few people in our culture were concerned about radical Islam. Now, we're beginning to understand, and I'm not sure our culture really fully understands the clear and present danger from radical Islam. You know, Islam is, is amazing in the growth that it has had. In fact, it's, it's unbelievable. There's been nothing like it. 
The Muslim population in Europe has exploded over the last 50 years. Do you know that 50 years ago there were 250,000 Muslims in all of Europe? Today there are 20 million Muslims in Europe and they tell us that that number will double to 40 million by the year 2020 and double again to 80 million by the year 2035. It's an incredible growth. And the biggest problem you would know with Islam and the growth of Islam is with the radical element of Islam. The radical element of Islam believes that the great jihad means that they need to subjugate the world to Islam. That is the goal. And the goal is, if necessary, you terrorize the enemies of Islam into submission. That's what radical Islam teaches. And there's something you may not be aware of, but there's a teaching inside of Islam that talks about the coming of the 12th Imam. Now, Imams, by number, are a particular leader descended from Muhammad who become the leader of the Islamic community. And this 12th Imam that Islam talks about, who is called the Mahdi, he is supposed to be a descendant of Muhammad's son-in-law, Ali. And here's what they are teaching in Islam about the 12th Imam, the Mahdi. When the 12th Imam, now you have to follow me here a little bit, when the 12th Imam comes, the 12th Imam will usher in a Messiah-like era in the world. And they believe, radical Islam believes, that if you want the 12th Imam to come sooner, that the appearance of this Mahdi can be hastened along by chaos and violence. In other words, the more chaos and violence that there is, the greater the likelihood that the 12th Imam would appear. And what I find fascinating is that there's actually some Shiite leaders, if you do your reading carefully, who say right now, they will say, I have seen glimpses of the 12th Imam. You know, it's like he's in the shadows. I've seen him. I saw a little glimpse of him, which then tends to incite even more radical behavior among those in radical Islam. Now, why you say, why are you telling me all that? Because it has bearing on what we're looking at today. You know, the number one voice of radical Islam in our day is the nation of Iran. Interesting. Iran is one of the coalition member nations from Ezekiel 38 and 39. An incredibly influential country, Iran. Number two in oil reserves only to Saudi Arabia. Number two in gas reserves only to Russia, which means that they have an incredible financial base to operate off of. And if you know anything about Iran, you'll know that Iran has a fiery leader who is Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, and many of you have heard his name mentioned, Ahmadinejad, and um, he is pushing the agenda of radical Islam. In fact, Iran is the sponsoring mother of Islamic terrorism right now. 
Iran is the primary nation pushing this. They are the primary sponsor behind Hezbollah and Hamas and Al-Qaeda. Iran, the nation of Iran, which appears in the pages of Ezekiel 38 and 39 as part of this coalition, is the chief banker of Islamic terrorism today. And what's interesting about Iran is Iran is actively, passionately pursuing nuclear weaponry. Now that has a lot of significance. And by the way, some of what I'm going to share with you today is going to be disconcerting to you a little bit. But hang in there. Because it's not really disconcerting to God. But one of our presidential candidates, John McCain, appearing, McCain, appearing on NBC's Meet the Press, said this. He said, if Iran gets the bomb, I think we could have Armageddon. Why does he say that? Because he understands the stance of Ahmadinejad and where he's coming from. Here's what Ahmadinejad has said. He has said, what I want to do, my singular goal is to destroy Israel. I want to wipe Israel off of the map. And here's what he says. When we do that, it will trigger the appearance of the Mahdi, the 12th Imam. If we can just get rid of Israel, it will usher in this messianic type era for all of Islam. He says, I want to destroy Israel, and I also want to destroy the great Satan, the great protector of Israel, which is America. And here's what Ahmadinejad says. He says, this will happen during my lifetime. Pretty strong words coming from him. And you know, sometimes as, as Americans, we're, we're, we just don't fully understand the dynamic of what's happening around us. And part of what I'm wanting to do is just to heighten our awareness a little bit. You may not be aware of it, but in 2006, Ahmadinejad sent a letter to the American people. He sent a five-page letter to the American people. And in that letter, he invited you and me and all Americans to convert to Islam. Now, you know, you hear about a letter coming from Ahmadinejad, and he's saying to you and to me, what you need to do is convert to Islam, and we're thinking, what a cocky guy, you know. How misguided is it? Is he? Does he not understand who we are? and We're not planning as a nation to do that? But what you may not know is that it is Islamic tradition to offer conversion to a people before you launch war on them. Islamic tradition is that you would peaceably appeal to a people to convert to Islam just before you planned to attack them in war. Now I want to remind you that Ahmadinejad has said this is going to happen in my lifetime. He has said that very, very soon this will be an Israel-free, USA-free world. And interestingly, he has said this. Ahmadinejad has said, Israel will be eliminated by one storm that will come upon her. Interesting choice of words. 
Look at Ezekiel 38 and verse 9. What God says of this coalition, you will go up, you will come like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops. Israel will be eliminated by one storm as we come upon her. Now, how long is Ahmadinejad going to be around? I don't know. We know how quickly you can have a very vocal leader in the Middle East brought down. And Saddam, we watched that happen. I'm not saying that Ahmadinejad is going to be the one, but it's very fascinating to me to listen to the words that are coming out of his mouth. Do you know what's really interesting? I, mean, I think this is part of what we're assigned by God to do is to look at biblical truth and, and, and step back and look at also history. You know, right now in America, we are currently caught in a very weird circle of futility. It's strange. When it comes to our battle against Islamic radical terrorism, the irony of, of this is in some ways we finance both sides of the battle. We spend billions of dollars fighting terrorism. And at the same time, we spend multiple billions of dollars to buy oil, some of which is in turn used to buy weapons to outfit radical terrorists and to train them and to develop nuclear weaponry. And so we must be alert to the clear and present danger of radical Islamic terrorism. But that leads us to an important question with even the threat coming from Iran right now about how we want to wipe everything out. The question is, where is the United States? I mean, when you open Ezekiel 38 and 39 and other portions of the Scripture, where is the United States in all of this? Now, there are some conservative scholars who would point to chapter 38 and verse 13. And they would say, the United States can be seen here where it mentions in verse 13, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all its villages. And there are some conservative scholars who would say, Tarshish is a reference to Europe. And they would say, when it talks about Tarshish with all its villages, that would be Europe and all of its colonies. And therefore they would say, it would seem that the United States would fit into that group. However, I don't think that's the best understanding of Tarshish. Tarshish is most likely a reference to Spain and not particularly to Europe and its colonies. So where is the USA in all of this? And the best thing that I can say, the best understanding that I have, is that there is no clear reference anywhere to the United States of America. The United States of America is MIA when it comes to discussion of future prophetic events in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Which then leads us to the third question that is of interest to us because right now we are the number one power in the world. I mean, no one is going to do anything. Certainly there's not going to be a group of people try to come attack Israel. 
with the United States in the position it is in now. So what happens to the U.S. of A.? What happens to the United States of America? And I want to make one point here that's very important. Step out of our world for a second and look at the long range of history. You know, as Americans, we can tend to view ourselves as invincible. Who's going to take us? We've got the greatest military in all of the world. We can't be taken by anybody else. Invincibility. It's the same attitude that various groups have had over the years. You take the Babylonian Empire, like world empires that ruled the world, had dominated the world. And if you were in the Babylonian Empire, you would think, nobody can take us. We're the greatest force on all the face of the planet. But the Babylonian Empire fell after about 100 years. And then you had the world empire of the Medo-Persians, and the idea was nobody can take us. We've got the fiercest fighting force of all, and no one can take us out. And the Medo-Persian empire fell after 200 years. And then you had the Greek empire, which was so wise and so skilled and so domineering, and the idea was nothing can ever happen to the Greek empire, which fell after 300 years. And we stand there and we look in the face of history as Americans, as a culture, and we think, we can't be defeated. We are invincible. And yet, how old is America? How old is it? 232 years. See, as a culture, we, we shouldn't be sticking our chest out saying, there's no way we can be defeated because it's not true. We'd be just like every other group that said it could never happen. Now, I want you to know we're going to do a major gear shift here, okay? So get ready for it. Because we're going to move from looking at some principles of Scripture that we've been doing, and, and we're going to move into conjecture, okay? I want you to understand very clearly we're going into conjecture here. Because we can surmise possibilities of what might happen to the U.S. of A. We can speculate on some certain outcomes, but that's all we're doing. But I want to go through this because I think you can see that it is not beyond the realm of possibility with just a few short events, we may no longer be the nation that we have been. So let me share with you four possible scenarios, possibilities, outcomes that could take us out of leadership. The first one is a severe oil crisis. Now, that's pretty believable for us, especially where we are right now, that that could likely happen. And if Arab nations were to cut us off from our oil, about 25% of our oil comes from Arab nations. If they were to just choose to cut us off, we would be in big trouble because we are a nation that moves by oil. And if you can't buy oil and you can't have uh, fuel, then it affects transportation, it affects construction, it affects our farms. How are you going to farm crops if you don't have the gasoline or the diesel to be able to do it? It affects our whole military. What happens to your military if you don't have the oil and the fuel, the energy necessary to operate? If we were to have a severe oil crisis, our nation would likely grind to a halt. In fact, those who do projections on this would say that the United States would likely experience a depression greater than the 1930s if such a thing were to happen. 
I, I, I realize, again, some of this is disconcerting, but we're just trying to be realistic about what could happen to us as a nation. And I believe if such a thing were to occur and we were thrown into a depression that is greater than the 1930s, America would most likely go into survival mode. Rather than being the policemen of the world, we would tend to turn inward. We want to survive. We would become more isolationist. And so one possibility is that there could be a severe oil crisis. Second thing I want to look at by way of some possibility would be nuclear terrorism that could occur. You know, if you took a, a 150 kiloton nuclear bomb and detonated it in New York City on a work day, you know what would happen? Within six seconds, there'd be 600,000 deaths. Within 10 seconds, there would be 830,000 deaths and 900,000 injuries, almost a million people injured. That's in the first 10 seconds if such a thing were to happen. And again, a lot of times in America, we say, well, that couldn't happen in America. Well, we never thought anybody could fly planes into buildings either. You know what's interesting about the possibility of a bomb, a single bomb like this going off? How would you get it into the country? Well, do you know that there, this is amazing to me, there are 50,000 containers, you know, those big, long, metal shipping crates, giant ones. There are 50,000 of them coming into the United States every day. And only 5% of those 50,000 are screened. That leaves 47,000-plus daily coming into the United States unchecked. Also, a 150-kiloton bomb could be launched from a commercial ship off the coast of the United States of America. Right now, off of our coasts, there are 130,000 registered commercial ships from 195 different countries. It could happen. It's not beyond the realm of possibility. Am I saying it will happen? No. Am I saying that it could happen? Yes. And I think if such a bomb were to be exploded on a key city like New York City, it would have a similar kind of an effect. I think America would soon want to start turning inward. America would become very isolationist. That's another possibility. There's a third one I want to look at that is absolutely fascinating to me. And that is a third possibility that could happen to the United States is there could be an EMP attack. And you hear that and you go, I don't know what that is. I never heard of such a thing. And you know what? About six months ago, I hadn't either. But the government has known about the threat for years. An EMP attack is an electromagnetic pulse weapon. And even Hollywood has picked up on their existence. For example, if you had to have a movie like The Matrix or Ocean's Eleven, you have small versions of EMP weapons being used as just part of the movie script that's there. But the EMP we're talking about is really a third-generation nuclear weapon. If I could put it this way, 
the EMP is really lightning on mega steroids, if you could try to imagine that. We know what lightning can do here in Oklahoma with storms. And here's what an EMP weapon will do. It will damage and destroy all electronic systems when it goes off. And you might say, hey, that's a bunch of Star Wars speculation. Uh, Not really. Do you know that in the year 2004, four years ago, Congress set up a commission to assess the threat to the United States of America from EMP weapons. And here's a statement that Congressman Jim Saxton made. He's the congressman from New Jersey. Listen to what his quote was in 2004. The technology is now here that can effectively bring America's way of life to an end. And here's the idea how this works. This is, this is unbelievable. But you can take a singular weapon on a single missile, and if you project it a few hundred miles up into the atmosphere over the United States, when it goes off, that single weapon from a single missile will affect the entire United States of America, and actually part of Canada and Mexico. Such a weapon, a single weapon from a single missile up hundreds of feet in the atmosphere will destroy and damage the electronics in our nation. And we are a nation of electronics. Our electrical power is all governed governed by electronic and computerized stuff telecommunication systems, all of the computers that we have. In fact, an EMP will will completely unravel ignition systems. How many people got into your car and turned on the ignition? An EMP just fries those things. It would destroy not only our electronics and computerization, it would affect all of our utilities, it would affect our transportation, because our cars, our trucks, our planes, our military all operates on electronics. It would then have a ripple impact into our food supply and into our water supply. In fact, they say that if such a single, one single EMP weapon being exploded in the atmosphere, that in America we would go dark for months and maybe even for years. I know this is disconcerting, but you know what? We need to be alert to what's going on around us. There was a report by the UPI that said this, imagine this, imagine the only people you could communicate with are those within your visual range or within the sound of your voice. Imagine the only way you could travel was to walk or ride a bike. Imagine no electricity, working telephones or computers, no fuel for cars or airplanes, no running elevators, no heat or light for houses and buildings, no running water, and after a few days, no food. Imagine that you had to live under these conditions for weeks, months, or even years. An electromagnetic pulse attack could inflict this catastrophic scenario now across the entire United States. And there are men and women right now, at least 10 nations, working on EMPs. 
And you might think, yeah, that's pretty scary. But no one's really serious about that. Came across a fascinating article from WorldNet Daily, and this is what the headline says. Now, now, put all this together. Iran plans to knock out U.S. with one nuclear bomb. Tests missiles for electromagnetic pulse weapon that could destroy America's technical infrastructure. Iran, one of the nations in the coalition, Ahmadinejad, who says the world will soon be Israel and America free. I want to just read you some parts of this. It's a fascinating article. It says, Iran is not only covertly developing nuclear weapons, but is already testing ballistic missiles specifically designed to destroy America's technical infrastructure, effectively neutralizing the world's lone superpower, say U.S. intelligence sources, top scientists, and Western missile industry experts. The radical Shiite regime in Iran has conducted successful tests to determine if its Shahab-3 ballistic missiles capable of carrying a nuclear warhead can be detonated by a remote control device while still in high altitude flight when it's way up in the atmosphere. A terrorist organization might have trouble putting a nuclear warhead on target with a scud but it would be much easier to simply launch and detonate it in the atmosphere, wrote Senator John Kyle, a Republican from Arizona, in the Washington Post. No need for the risk and difficulty of trying to smuggle a nuclear weapon over the border or to hit a particular city. Just launch a cheap missile from a, a, a freighter in international waters, and Al-Qaeda is believed to own 80 such freighters, and then make sure that it gets, gets a few miles up into the air. Detonated at a height of 60 to 500 kilometers, that's about 40 to 300 miles, above the continental United States, one nuclear warhead could cripple the country, knocking out electrical power and circuit boards and rendering the U.S. domestic communications impotent. The Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Terrorism, Technology, and Homeland Security, which was chaired by Kyle, held a hearing on the electromagnetic pulse, or EMP, threat. An electromagnetic attack on the American homeland, said one of the distinguished scientists who testified at the hearing, is one, listen to this, is one of only a few ways that the United States could be defeated by its enemies, terrorist or otherwise. And it is probably the easiest a single Scud missile carrying a single nuclear weapon detonated at the appropriate altitude would interact with the Earth's atmosphere, producing an electromagnetic pulse radiating down to the surface at the speed of light. Depending on the location and size of the blast, the effect would be to knock out already stressed power grids and other electrical systems across much or even all of the continental United States for months, if not years. The EMP offers a bigger bang for the buck. He also suggested that such an attack makes U.S. nuclear response against a suspected enemy less likely than would a de detonation of a nuclear bomb in a major U.S. city. In other words, we end up, we can't respond militarily because of this. The commission report went so far as to suggest in its opening sentence that an EMP attack might result 
this is an amazing statement, in the defeat of our military forces. One, one on a single missile could potentially defeat our military forces. They go on to describe the potential cascading effect of an EMP attack. If electrical power is knocked out and circuit boards are fried and telecommunications are disrupted and energy deliveries are impeded and the financial system breaks down, food and water and gasoline become scarce. As Kyle put it, few if any people would die right away, but the loss of power would have a cascading effect on all aspects of U.S. society. Communications would largely be impossible. Lack of refrigeration would leave food rotting in warehouses, exasperated by a lack of transportation as those vehicles still working would simply run out of gas, which of course is pumped by electricity. The inability to sanitize and distribute water would quickly threaten public health, not to mention the safety of anyone in the path of the inevitable fires which would rage unchecked. And as we have seen in the areas of natural and other disasters, such circumstances often result in a very, fairly rapid breakdown of social order. American society has grown so dependent on computer and other electrical systems that we have created, this is an amazing statement, our own Achilles heel of vulnerability. Ironically, our vulnerability is much greater than those of other less developed nations. One senator wrote, when deprived of power, we are in many ways helpless. Kyle Congressman Kyle concluded in his report, the September 11 Commission report from 9-11 stated that our biggest failure as a nation was one of imagination. It just never imagined that someone would get a plane and drive it into a building. He says that was our greatest failure in 9-11. No one imagined that terrorists would do what they did on September 11. Today, Few Americans can conceive of the possibility that terrorists could bring our society to its needs, knees by destroying everything we rely on that runs on electricity. Now, that's an amazing article. Saying Iran is the one who's saying that's what we're going to do. That's the way we're going to take out the United States. And what's really amazing to me about this article is it's dated April 25, 2005. This is already three years old. How will the United States no longer be effective? We don't know. But one could be that. Now, I want to share with you one final possibility that could happen to the United States that might take us out of leadership. And that fourth possibility would be the rapture, which we're going to be talking about when we come to 1 Thessalonians 4. The event that I understand best to understand is the, is the event that really closes the church era and begins the final seven years that have been given over to the nation of Israel that we saw from Daniel chapter 9. It's where there is a snatching up that would occur of living believers, a big event where all living believers who are part of the church would be snatched up. Do you know that in the United States of America, we have more evangelical believers per square mile than anywhere else in the world? George Barna has said this. He says he estimates that there are 8% of Americans who are evangelicals. He defines evangelicals this way. An evangelical believes in salvation by faith in Christ alone without works. That would describe all of us here, I believe. 
8% of Americans are evangelicals, and the 2000 census tells us there are 281 million Americans. That means that if the rapture is an event that occurs where God just snatches out living believers, that that would be 22.5 million adults, and if you added in some children, it would be 30 to 40 million people who would just disappear instantly. Boom, they're gone and in heaven. 20, 30, 40 million. Well, what happened to America if that happened? Well, you know, that would be our workers and our leaders and our teachers and members of the police and members of the military. Can you imagine what would happen if up to 40 million people just disappeared? I mean, the United States would be thrown into confusion and chaos. That's a possibility. Which one do I think is going to happen? Is it going to be a severe oil crisis? Is it going to be nuclear terrorism? Is it going to be an EMP attack? Is it going to be the rapture? I have no idea. None. It could be something different. But there's a couple of things I want us to note about all of this. It wouldn't take very much for the United States to back off of the world scene. And then think about this. You have the United States backed off, and then you have this northern coalition of nations who say, we want to go down and we want to destroy Israel, we want to wipe them off the face of the planet, and God comes down and supernaturally wipes all of them out. And you have a wonderful opportunity for a man named the Antichrist, who is the prince who is to come, as described in Daniel 9, to step into the void and set himself up before the world and say, I want to be worshipped now. Wouldn't take very much for that to happen at all. Now, what does all of this mean for us? What does all this mean for you? What does all this mean for me? Well, I want to I mention several things. First of all, we need to be in touch with the fact that God is not on vacation somewhere where we begin to get nervous and we fret and we think, I don't know, does God even know what's happening? Yeah, God knows exactly what's happening. And he laid a lot of this out in prophetic history for us. He has his hand on history and his will will be done, whatever it may be and whatever the outcome may be for our country. I want you to just remember what it says in Isaiah 41.10. It says this, Do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. The promise is, he says, I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so we don't want to get fretful about all of this, because God's not on vacation. This is happening just the way he wants us to happen second thing I think it means is that we need to keep serving him we need to keep serving him that's why it says in 1 Corinthians 15 58 be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing your toil is not in vain in the Lord we have a lot of freedom we have a lot of resources we have a lot of opportunities and we need to continue to serve him 
We need to continue to do just what we're doing. We need to continue to branch our ministry out wider. We need to continue to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. We need to continue to build the truth of the word of God into people. We need to keep serving him. And then, what does it mean? Well, I think it means that if you do not know God, there could be some scary times coming pretty fast. And you need to turn to Jesus as your personal rescuer from sin and judgment. This is not going to be a time and an era to not know God. Let's pray together. And then we're going to sing a closing song. Our great and mighty God, we just thank you again for the Bible, which so helps us to understand what's going on around us. And Father, we do not want to be people who are caught off guard. Some of the things we've talked about today are not very pleasant to even contemplate happening. But we want to be aware of what's going on in the world around us. If anybody ought to be, it ought to be the people who know Jesus Christ and follow him. But I would pray, Father, that you would help us to remember that we need to be right at this time going about the business of serving Jesus Christ and building his kingdom. While it is easier for us to do that, while we have the opportunity and the resources, and Father, if there's anybody listening to my voice who does not yet know Jesus Christ personally, who's never come into a relationship with him, who does not know him as the rescuer from sin and judgment, I would pray, Father, that they would now turn to him and say, I need to know the God of the universe who bled and died and paid for your sin and your penalty and your judgment by dying for you. And then, Father, may we remember that your hand is still on history. Your will will be done, but your unfailing love for us will never, ever cease. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.